from New York City. A podcast from working actors, directors, and playwrights. This is the Cry Havoc Company. Hello, and welcome to the Cry Havoc Podcast. This is going to be the final podcast of our first season. Thank you all for joining us for the first season so far. Today around the table we have... Tim Davis, I'm an actor and a writer. Carrie Flanagan, I'm an actor. Jenny Carlin, I'm an actor. Jen Reichert, I'm a writer. And Kit Lavoy, I am a director and writer. So we wanted to do for our final episode of the season a topic that brought together a lot of the things that we've already talked about in kind of more practical terms. And so what we're talking about today is playing the villain. There are, in many, many plays, certainly not all plays, but in many plays there is a villain or villains in the story. And that can be both a really exciting challenge and a really satisfying experience for an actor, but it also is something that's really rife with traps. And we'll talk a lot about what those traps are. But it also is really an opportunity to talk about something that's really central to the way that we, I think, as, as individual artists work, and something that is true of our company, I think. That it's actually one of the things that's in our mission statement that says that we approach all plays as conflict between individuals struggling to do what each desperately believes is right. And I think that's kind of a central part of the way that the company views what makes good theater, and I think the way that we that we tend to approach it in our work. And so that creates both a special challenge and also, I think, a, a roadmap to some level of success when you're talking about playing a villain in a, in a play or a film when you're trying to find a way into them where you're trying to find the way that they desperately believe that the thing that they are doing is right. So let's cook off a little bit and define our terms. I mean, what are we talking about when we talk about a villain? Well, I think typically it would be a character or person who people would perceive as someone who is or does evil or bad things. Yeah. I, I think for, for our purposes, we're talking about people who the audience perceives, and I think that's important, as bad people or the people who do wrong in the course of a play. And it's worth saying, actually, I think that not all villains are antagonists and not all antagonists are villains, that you have... You know, Hannibal Lecter is a villain, but he is not an antagonist. He actually helps the protagonist. Similarly, in Proof, Claire, the sister, is the antagonist of the play, but no one would call her a villain. And there are some plays, like Macbeth, for instance, where the protagonist is a villain. So again, we're not talking about the person who's against, quote-unquote, or the obstacle, quote-unquote, of the hero, but someone who is an evildoer in, in some way or another. I have been thinking a lot about how you actually define a, a villain, and I had a very difficult time actually coming up with a, uh, a definition that satisfied me, simply because I could find exceptions in each particular case in, in, in a, in a storytelling uh, uh, aspect what I thought was, was somewhat satisfactory was that the, the villain was the character who presented the greatest challenge or obstacle to the story's point of view. Mm-hmm. To the, the, you know, the, I mean, every story sort of has, any good story anyway, has a, a heart, um, a, a, I want to avoid the word message, but sort of a, a general thematic sensibility. And the villain tends to be the person who, who challenges that or attempts to thwarts, thwart, it. thwarts it or um, in some way... Uh, or, or maybe even by their actions or, or their presence, sort of ignites the protagonist to 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 execute whatever that that theme might be. Uh, so it, it was just really difficult to come up with with what a villain is because, in, like in the case of Macbeth, which is a character that I I have played and I have played. All right, there we go. <laughs> um, um, the uh, the most difficult aspect is. For me, in that is is that Macbeth is clearly the villain, yet he is also, as you said, clearly the protagonist. But and perhaps I need to revisit the play. But I'm not sure what thematic worldview Macbeth is challenging that that Shakespeare offers. So 
I, I'm not even satisfied with, with my own definition of villain of, of a villain in that sense because he's clearly the villain. He's clearly the protagonist. Yet that sensibility of, of Macbeth challenging Shakespeare's worldview as it relates to the writing of Macbeth or whatever thematic elements he's exploring in Macbeth, that, that doesn't seem to exist there. So I, I'm still not satisfied with, with for myself with, with any definition I've come up with for, for villain. The degree to which it's one of those things you might know it when you see it. Yeah. I think to me it's always been, uh, it was really hard for me to figure this out too because I don't think, my first thought was I've never played a villain, but I'm sure I have. <laughs> I probably do every day. Um, but uh, the only thing I can come up with is that the villain works against what the audience is invested in. Mm-hmm. Like from the audience's point of view, it, the, yeah, the person who presents himself as the villain is the one who's keeping that thing from happening. And I actually think it's it's a combination of both of those things. That it's 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 the person who it's fighting against what the play is trying to get at. But then it's that idea of that the audience, if the play is doing its job, is invested in the same thing. So, what villains have you guys played? Just sort of as a, or if you haven't, or even if you have, are there any villains that you would be especially interested in playing? I haven't played that many. Uh, I'm I'm not primarily an actor, but. I did once play this woman who was a guardian angel, and she just went all vigilante on somebody, which I know is not what they do. Like the the vigilante guardian. <laughs> the angel. vigilante guardian angel who not like with wings went off the grid and did bad things to people. Although in that particular play, it's interesting because you think that she's the hero of the play until you realize that the person that she is vigilanteing didn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As we mentioned, I've played Macbeth, who I think we've clearly established is the villain of Macbeth. Uh, years ago, I played a character in a play called Keely and Dew by Jane Martin, in which I was clearly the villain. And what was what was the most interesting experience about about Keelian do was that actually the more invested I became in that character's worldview and why he was right and and sort of the the, the result of that was attempting to, to make the character almost more sympathetic to the audience the more disturbing and angrier people became about my character the the, the play Keelian do is about a uh, woman who has been sexually assaulted and raped by her her ex-boyfriend who she was attempting to get away from and is now pregnant and she was planning on aborting the fetus and a religious organization kidnaps her and chains her in a basement and is basically going to force her to come to turn with the baby and I played the the leader of this particular movement and so obviously you know considering the themes of of the play it was already a very tempestuous situation for for an audience to watch but what was interesting to me uh as we went through the run of that is the more invested i became in my character's attempt to do right in that the angrier the audience became at me i had several people who would come up to me afterwards who were somewhat offended by the portrayal that i created and i think it was because it, it made the play difficult for them to watch because you become somewhat compromised it's it's this is the thing about playing villains, is if, is if you have to do two things at once. You have to, A, know that you're the villain in the story, and therefore, from a storytelling perspective, know what you have to execute in order for the play to work. Um, but then, as the actor, you also need to know, you know how to fully invest in that character and believe in what that character uh, needs and wants and does. And so you sort of have to keep both balls in the air, mm-hmm. which is why I think vil- playing villains is both very, very challenging and very, very fun. Because had I just made that character the bad guy, it puts you in a, it puts you in a, almost a different genre. If, if in, in that particular play with those social themes going on, it, it would have been uh, uh, you know, a very strident lecture hall Series and in another type of play, you know, I was thinking about villains, and I was thinking of actually Alan Rickman in the Robin Hood movie with Kevin Costner, where it's it's just fun, it's just a ride, and it's partly because Rickman knows he's the villain the entire time and just is sort of taking you on this ride, so you just sort of can enjoy what he's doing, and because but because of that, there's no real emotional investment in what he's doing. I mean, even at the point where he attempts to sexually assault uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. It's it's funny 
rather than what that would be in any type of realistic context, which it would be you know horrific and and, and, and terrible. So, well, I think that's that's part of one of the real dangers of playing a villain is that usually, though not always, but usually the villain loses. And I've seen very often I've directed actors it, it, playing roles where they're the villain who basically they show up to lose. They show up to be the person who's going to be beaten. And I think that that's just such an important part of, of approaching the role is you need to show up to win. You need to show up to win because it's more, more interesting to watch, certainly. But two, it actually makes the hero more heroic if they beat someone who's, who's, trying. who's trying. Right. And who isn't there as a straw man. Right. And, and, you know, and there also is, I think, very often, I mean, one of the things I think can be really wonderful about theater and film, but especially theater, is that in terms of getting themes of a piece across, to implicate an audience by giving them the opportunity to identify with the villain, to identify with the thing that the play is ultimately speaking against, as it were, because that makes them really think about it. It makes it not an exercise in watching and having the play, you know, agree with them that this thing that they walked in thinking was bad was bad. I mean, I think it's it's that idea if you can have the villain behave in such a way that the audience almost agrees with him at some point or finds him attractive in some way, it makes them really confront the gray areas and the reasons that they come down on whatever side of that issue that they do beyond the fact that that it's easy to and that the play is telling them it's easy. I couldn't agree more. Uh, A handful of years ago, I did a a small four-person play uh, uh, by a playwright whom we know in which it was clear my character was supposed to be the villain. The, the, The play... Uh, whose title I currently forget, was uh, about artist struggles in New York and, and the, 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 the monetary drain that can be in you and therefore the emotional drain it can be on you to, to be a, a, a struggling artist in New York. And, and my character was the, the, the financial successful guy. And it was clear that that's how the playwright saw my character. And it was clear then mm-hmm. that any time I stepped on stage, I was... <laughs> automatically in the wrong, and uh, and and the character was set up uh, at least on the page as a straw man, and uh, it, it led to a very difficult rehearsal process simply because I refused to play him that way. I refused to lose, and there were several scenes that were written in which it was if you just played what was just on the page, my character was <laughs> basically going to be you know verbally emotionally and intellectually beaten around the stage. And I didn't think that would be interesting for me to play. I didn't think it'd be interesting for, for an audience to watch and for, from a storytelling perspective. I didn't think it was uh, would, would make much of a story and uh, for, for the exact reasons we're talking about. But it led to a very d- difficult rehearsal process simply because I attempted to justify my character's worldview and the actions he was taking. And so I really fought with, with the other characters on stage for my place in that world. Oddly enough, in that particular case, the playwright wasn't interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think I was set up for a straw man to articulate whatever particular worldview he had. But I think something that's important in all of that is that... And actually, I remember... I, I saw that play that you were in. And that there really is a degree to which you need to, as an actor, do your job and let the play do its job. Your job is to do the things that your character does in the play. It's the play's job to provide the context in which those behaviors are judged good or bad. And it's actually, um, I don't know if you guys have seen The Pursuit of Happiness, that Will Smith movie from a few years ago, where his character um, is like homeless and has a son and he's trying to make a better life for his son but there's a point at which he, he loses his job and he's they're living on the street and they're trying to get into this uh, that there's this shelter that they can go to that's the only safe place for them to be but they have to get there by a certain time or they can't get in and there's this scene where he's running from a job interview and he's dressed in a suit which is the only thing he's got and he's got his son and they're trying to get to the bus and there's this long line of people and they're about to close the bus and he comes and he jumps in between the the guy who's in the line and the bus and just berates him and swears at him and shoves him and and gets on the bus and it's one of those things that on one hand 
in the context of the film, knowing he's going to the homeless shelter with his son so his son doesn't have to sleep on the street, you totally understand what he's doing. You're angry at the man in line for giving him a hard time for cutting to get on the bus. But the guy doesn't know he's on the homeless. He's he's coming from going to the homeless shelter. He's a well-dressed guy with a kid. But what occurred to me when watching that is, if the movie was a movie about the guy waiting in line for the bus, and we'd been following him, and Will Smith had come in and done exactly the same performance, you would have thought this is a scene about some asshole who won't let him on the bus. That's all you would have known. And I feel like if you are in a if if you are cast as the asshole who won't let the guy let the hero on the bus, why can't you play for your own self you're trying to get your son to the homeless shelter? Play the thing that you can believe in that makes the the thing the quote unquote villainous thing. I'm not sure that not letting a guy on a bus is a villainous thing, but it but <laughs> <laughs> but but to let the villainous thing be for a reason that you can really and truly believe in and you can play that scene positively. Not as the the thing that's stopping the guy from getting on the bus, but you're getting your son safely to the shelter so he doesn't have to sleep on the street that night. And because if we had not had all of that back information about why Will Smith needed to get on that bus, he just would have appeared like a truly belligerent and believably belligerent person. And the audience, if we weren't given that back information, wouldn't know. You're not hurting the audience's experience of the story by having that backstory that they don't know. Mm-hmm. All that you're doing is giving yourself a reason, giving yourself a reason to do it. Mm-hmm. Actually, before we get too far into this stuff, are there just uh, other villains that either people have, Carrie or Jenny, either have played or would like to? What about Lady Capulet? I, uh, it's really hard for me to figure that out because I don't. I've never considered anything I've played a villain. <laughs> but I, yeah, I don't. I, I don't. <laughs> it's really difficult for me because I don't. I, I don't approach less, anything. There may be much, many less female villains out there. Yeah, I mean, I know stereo, stereotypically. I don't know what word I'm looking for, but I think a lot of people, when hand when cast as Lady Capulet, would play her like a villain. Air that's quotes. why I say, it's, I, yeah. that's why I purport it because it, some people would consider. And it do, I mean, yeah, I mean, does she work against? But I would say that you in didn't some ways play her as yeah. an evil person, which is our. Point. I have a, it's tough for me because I understand the concept. I understand that you need to understand the role that your character plays in the story. Hey. Bless <laughs> you, but um, it's tough. Like I. I I guess the closest I came to like a villain I've ever played is um <laughs> is uh the gang member in Karate Kid the Musical, um, which was a complete stereotype. But that's that that's the um the purpose it served. But I still had reasons for doing what I was doing on the stage. That I mean I had to create why <laughs> the character of Daniel worked against everything I believed in. <laughs> so I mean I so and and how Johnny was everything I everything I believed in so but and then I just went with it and I think it read as like because I committed in a psychotic way and I think that uh, it read as completely villainous and psychotic which was the point well the, I I actually have played a lot of villains so I mean I, I played Macbeth. <laughs> I played Harry Rote in uh, in uh, Wait, till Wait Until Dark. Played Roy Cohn. I played Roy Cohn a couple of times in Angels in America when I was way too young to do it. You played <laughs> Gollum. I played Gollum. <laughs> I played Malvolio in, in Twelfth Night. I mean, I actually have done a lot of, of villains. And But it's interesting when you say that, that you don't think of any of the characters that you play as being villains. Because one thing, and I'm not going to go all into it because I've talked about it on at least a couple of podcasts of episodes before because it was an important thing for me but uh, Philip in Party Girl which I wrote that he really he is absolutely intended to be the villain of the piece I mean what the piece is saying is that there is this guy who is exerting this sense of ownership over his girlfriend and that is something that hurts the both of them but when I played that role I couldn't think of him as the villain I had to find the way and I did the ways that he was the hero of the piece from my point of view. But it was interesting because I had to 
it would have been a very because part of it is I knew as the playwright how I wanted the audience to feel about him. And I could very easily have tried to play how I wanted the audience to feel about yeah. him. But yeah. <laughs> but I, but I think but I think really fighting that and instead, I mean it's actually very similar to what you were saying Tim about Keelian Do is by figuring out the way that I could look this person in the eye and really say this thing I this incredibly hurtful thing. But for in my head because what I was trying to do was to save this relationship. It made it that people afterwards, like, that thing you said to her was so horrible. But I think it's it's so horrible because I was able to say it and really mean it. And for myself, thinking about it right now, I think it's the right thing to say. If the situation had been the situation that I had created in my head for the backstory of this situation. That, that's what makes it worse, is when you mean it. Like, if you say something really awful to a person and you're just saying it because it's a fight or whatever, and it's just, like, just to be hurtful and it's not even true, that's one thing. But if you have something that you're saying honestly, that, that's even worse. Yeah. Sorry. I think if you're the villain or any character in a piece, if you are attempting to, uh, I like what you said a moment ago, Kit, attempting to satisfy basic expectations of an audience, you, you let them, I don't want to say off the hook because I, I don't want to put an audience on a hook, but, <laughs> but you, you allow them a way to distance themselves mm-hmm. from a piece by you know by sort of winking at them and letting them know that you understand the function of this piece of, of theater or this film and therefore you're going to let them know what you anticipate their reaction is going to be and, and there's sort of this this veneer and this this safe distance that results that allows an audience to become less invested in in what you're doing and, and therefore it's it's, it's a, just a much less satisfactory. Uh, storytelling experience and, and I like what you're saying about if you really truly emotionally invest in and, and tactically invest in why that character <laughs> believes he's right the audience has to constantly be involved in that story and evaluating their own expectations versus what's happening and it, it just makes for a much more satisfying experience for the audience I think if you don't instruct them on how they should be feeling in any one particular moment. I think if you trust that the work that you're creating is going to present particular, perhaps ethical challenges for them to, to navigate, it, it's going to be a much more satisfying experience and a much more, I think, just intense experience for an audience to, to, to walk themselves through. I think, I, I just, the com- combination of all these things just made me realize something. That I think that a lot of, uh, traps, the, the biggest trap for actors playing villains or playing anything is I think most actors are terrified of being disliked by people mm-hmm. and uh, so I think they make one of two choices that actually work against them and I think that is, if you're playing a villain you either go after the really st- I'm playing evil because then I'm really going to have an impact and they're going to think I'm evil and so evil it's and so awesome. evil it's awesome <laughs> or, or they go the other way because they're so terrified of being disliked that they shy away from the, the dangerous stuff but I think that actually it's that middle ground of really being invested in what you're doing, forgetting about letting the audience figure out how they feel about you. Because I think when you're really invested like that, why it's so dangerous is because you're risking, and the actors are terrified of this, you're risking that, those audience members not liking you. Like you as a human. Mm-hmm. If they see you on the street, they might want to hurt you. Mm-hmm. Like, and that only comes when you're truly invested in something. I think. This brings us, again, to One for the Road, uh, which... Uh, you played a villain in that. I, 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 yeah. Uh, I, and my, uh, my own father <laughs> did not want to speak to me after that play and actually said that on several moments he wanted to hit me uh, while that play was that going on. Get over here. Get home. <laughs> You go to your room. Um, <laughs> Stop torturing that man. <laughs> but but I think I think I think you know that, that's a perfect example. Is had I had I played that character, you know, believing he was wrong, believing he was the villain, and allowing the audience to in on that particular uh, uh, perspective. It again, I'm not interested in, in putting an audience so much in danger as much as I am in in challenging what feels satisfactory for them. Um, I, I, you, you don't want an audience, I think, to, to... 
I'm not interested in presenting to an audience themes that are easily arrived at, that sort of satisfy their preconceptions. And I think when you can you can offer uh, a villain in which they are invested in, in, in what they believe and are truly attempting to do what they believe is right, the, the answers and or the questions that, that will be raised for an audience are not easily arrived at. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, just, it's just a much more satisfying experience, even if it leads to your father wanting to do you bodily harm. <laughs> and I think a lot of it, um, again, has to do, and it's something we talked about in the last in an earlier episode about script analysis and character history is, you know, building a situation for yourself where it's, it's something actually a teacher of ours, Tim, said once uh, that I just have has always stuck with me because I think it's, it's really right that, that people often ask the question of what would I do in this situation? But the real question to ask is what would the situation have to be for me to do what this character does? And... You know, that there, that again, you can build things that have happened, information that you have. And I mean, one of the things that we really uh, talked about when we were working on One for the Road was the idea that you didn't like the fact that people were being tortured. You wanted to send these people home. And so, in this safe place of this office where they weren't being hurt, you were going to terrify them as much as necessary to get them to say the thing that would not make you send them back to those people who hurt them. And that there's something about... That gave you the permission to be absolutely terrifying to watch because there were no punches to pull because by not pulling your punches in what you said to them, you were trying to save them from having their fingernails ripped out. Mm. And, but that's something that I could get behind. If I was put in a situation where I knew I had to scare people enough to tell me information so I did not have to send them back to have their hands broken, mm-hmm. I would do horrifying things to them to make that happen. Well, and, and, even, and even when it's, it's, it's not doing something horrifying to them, it, it creates all sorts of, of, of complexity. I remember the rehearsal we had where we discovered that, where the character with whom I was working, Chris Burke, who we, we, we've mentioned in several podcasts, in, in relation to this play, again, where he was resisting me, I actually attempted to throw him out of the room to go back to being tortured. And I threw the door open and invited him to leave. And everyone at that point realized that the safest place for him to be in this world that we've, we've constructed was in the room with me. Mm-hmm. That that was the safest place for him to be. So despite the fact that I was the villain of the piece, despite the fact that I may say or do horrible things, in that particular moment, we needed each other. Yeah. And I think that, again, I keep harping on this point, but I think the more gray you offer in a piece rather than simple black and white, uh, the more satisfying experience it is for everyone involved. And I think that gets to something that I think is so important and a trap that I think people fall into a lot when they're playing the villain is giving themselves too much power. Because I think a big part of what was really helpful for driving you in One for the Road was you didn't have the power to stop the torture until they gave you the information. Mm-hmm. And so often I think people think, well, I'm the big bad villain. I can do whatever I want without being called to account to anyone. But then then you're being forced to imagine that the quote-unquote evil desire is strictly theirs. And I think that, that it's really important to find the reasons that they need to do these things that they do. In order to achieve whatever good it is they're trying to achieve, the only way, box them in so that they are people who, if there was another way to do it, would do it another way, but there isn't. And I mean, I think that's the thing about being able to find the course, find the story in the character that you can believe in. Mm-hmm. It's like Pontius Pilate in the Superstar. Hmm. Yeah, actually, yeah. And in the Bible. <laughs> I know it as a musical. And uh, Kerry Flanagan, you need to leave now to go cut people's hair or something. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs> Bye, Kerry. Bye. 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 But I think a lot of this actually gets to one of the other traps. That and what Kerry was actually just saying, I think, really uh, gets to it. 
which is playing to the wrong audience. That as a character, your audience is the other characters in the play. And I think it's something that, especially as a villain, you can fall into the trap of my job is to be what the audience wants me to be, is to scare the audience. Well, they're not in the room. That's not something that you really can play and play truthfully and honestly because it's projecting whatever you've got going out in a direction that your character doesn't know exists. And the more, and I want to say menacing, although it's not necessarily menace, but the more you are trying to act on the other characters in the play, the audience is going to feel that and they're going to feel the ripples of that. And you just have to trust that. And I think something that's really useful to think about with all this is that villains don't think that they are villains. And I bet that if you think, there have been times in your life where you have been the villain in other people's lives. There have been times in your life where it's an ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, somebody who you're having a fight with, somebody who you called the police on. I mean, I don't know what happened. But there are times where if you were making a movie of somebody else's life, you would be the villain in it. And I can almost guarantee that those times you were not sitting there twirling your mustache and cackling and thinking about how you wanted to hurt the other person. That's not what you were doing. You were trying to protect important things that you thought that they were going to destroy in one way or another. They were probably the villain in your life at that moment, too. In, in life, whenever you're, you have a conflict with someone and you're rehashing some sort of conflict and you're accused of doing something that you, you may have done or may have said, invariably your response to that is going to be, yes, but that's only because fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that, that that's sort of a good phrase to hold on to, I think, when you're playing the villain is you may do heinous things in a play, you may do horrific things in a play, you may hurt people in a play, but always have in preparation for yourself that, yes, but that's only because... And then fill in that blank. And even in, uh, beyond that, of course I did, right. because. <laughs> you know, that there's... Well, that, to get, that's a, such a wonderful thing to say, because, again, going back to Keely and Dew, where I'm a man who has chained a woman to a bed in a basement and am forcing, forcing her to come to terms with the baby. And one of the, the perspectives of the character I played is that if you would just do... What my character believes is right, which is not abort this baby and have the baby, I wouldn't have to do this. Mm. I don't want to kidnap you. I don't want to chain you to a bed for six months. I don't want to do that. And if you would just help me do the right thing for you, none of this would be necessary. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a valuable perspective and that's something you can actively, actively play. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, and it's it's part, I'm sure, part of the whole debate or whatever. But from his perspective, he's preventing a murder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's you know? saving life. Yeah. From, from he's, his he's, perspective, he's yes. saving a life by kidnapping. So the kidnapping is the lesser for him. Yes, you know, and and I think that there's again finding the the thing that I I don't know if you guys have seen. Uh, I actually know a couple of you have seen because I saw it with you. But the documentary wordplay about crossword puzzle enthusiasts, which I actually can't recommend enough. It's really wonderful. But one of the people who they interview in it was Bill Clinton. And he said something, and it was about crossword puzzles, but it actually felt to me like sort of the core of my acting philosophy, actually. Because what he said is, when he's doing a really hard crossword puzzle... He said, I'll often go over more than half the clues before I find one that I know the answer to. And then once I get that, I can build off of there. And you can unravel the whole puzzle from that one answer that you know. Um, and he said, very rarely do I work a puzzle of any difficulty from one across, one down to the end. And I think that that is so much the mistake that people make when they're doing script analysis of a villain or of anyone is that they're like, all right, well, let me look at the script from the beginning to the end and see what the play is telling me to play. But you need to find that thing that you can believe in, that one thing in that villain's life that you can say, yes, that I buy into. 
I can buy, I, I understand that, I believe in that, and let's see how that finds its way through the rest of the play. Mm-hmm. And there, there's one thing I think, because I said I played Roy Cohn a couple of times, and it was when I was, both times it was when I was way too young to play it, and before I really had a very clear acting philosophy. But I actually later read Roy Cohn's autobiography, which I should have read before I played the role, obviously. But um, one of the things that he talked about, which made so much of what he did in the play make sense, and I would love to play the role in, in Angels in America again, was he talked so much about his relationship with his father and that that was his most valued relationship in his life. He loved his dad so much. He knew how much his dad had done for him. And he never outright said it in his biography, but he talked so much about his father that it really struck me the idea that as a gay man, he knew he was never going to have that relationship with anyone. He was never going to have that father-son relationship with anyone. So the relationship that he develops with Joe, if you look at it as a father with a son, as it being about tough love of someone who loves someone like a son and wants him to have the kind of life that he wishes for him. If you had exactly the same play, but instead of being Roy Cohn power broker, the character had been introduced as Joe's dad, you would feel for it. You really would feel for him for the fact that Joe is not listening to him and breaking his heart. You would understand the seemingly horrible things that Roy says and does to Joe when he's trying to get Joe to be a man. And there's something about that 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 I totally can connect with that, with that idea of wanting so bad to have a son to be able to give him what your father gave you and knowing you never will and latching onto this person who refuses to see you as a father. I I would love to play that role again because I feel like, I, I mean, I haven't gone through to unravel the way it plays out in the rest of the play, but I feel like I could build it. I could totally build an approach to that character off of that thing that I can totally connect to. And I feel like that that uh, kind of goes back to what we've talked about a lot this season in terms of the value of research when you're playing a character. Because actually, it just occurred to me, I haven't played any villains, but I actually auditioned the other week to play this character who um, is actually a real-life person who is a bank robber and is kind of like the Bonnie, and she's the Bonnie of Bonnie and Clyde. And I was looking her up, and, and other people were helping me kind of do research on her, and just... Her life is so full and all of this stuff where you see why this choice was made and why she went here. And it, it just, it helps so much, I think, to to do as much research as you can on the character, especially if it's a real person or, you know, the time period or whatever that would help you come up with the justifications that makes it make sense for you to do what you do. Yeah. I, I, and especially if it's a something, it's a situation you're not, you know, you're not familiar with. Because, yeah. like, I know Will is in Ruined now, and he's it's set in the Congo, right? And mm-hmm. and so I'm sure there was a lot of research available to, like, find out what it's like there and, like, what, you know, mm-hmm. to, to kind of help you build that world for yourself. Yeah. When we talk about research, what we're ultimately looking for is, is finding a way into these characters to understand them. And so that we, we can play them with, with a sense of, of efficacy, with a sense of... Of, of, of a valid perspective that that can ground you and you can you can drive off of and it, it's interesting to me how you know we we look at our culture and, and you can you can see who your heroes and villains are uh, in, in in your culture and and how we how interested we are in attempting to understand or not understand them how quick we are to dismiss them I, you know, I, I was thinking I was reading the New York Times this weekend and, and dealing with the whole situation regarding Dr. Tiller and, and, and that tragedy and how easy it will be for people to dismiss the, the man who killed Dr. Tiller as simply a nut. As uh, Mr. Van Brunn, I believe, uh, the, the man who, who walked in the Holocaust Museum and, and, and uh, you know, committed a heinous act and, and, and killed people there. It'd be easy to dismiss him as a, a, a nut, which he may be in a result-oriented fashion. But I think on a larger cultural scale, if we're ever really going to get to the heart of these problems and solve them and really be able to to find solutions for dealing with each other, we have to understand where they're coming from. And not to sound trite, but, you know, Plays are a reflection of your culture, and I think if you're really going to try to understand each other, if you're really going to try to to communicate 
with each other and resolve grievances and maybe move past old battles and, and deal with new challenges, you owe it to yourself as, as an actor to, to do that research and try to understand these people you're playing. Because in a larger context, if, if you dismiss the killer of uh, Dr. Tiller as just a nut, you'll never really resolve this horrific debate that is you know, needlessly costing, literally costing lives. On a, on a, in, in terms of plays, which I honestly think are a reflection of your culture, at least when, when, when they're done, at their best they are. If you're really hoping to further the debate and elevate the debate in, in our country and in our world about you know, issues that we care about, you owe it to yourself as the actor. The one small part you can do, I think, is to do the research, to do your, your due diligence, particularly on the villain, because it's incumbent on you to present the challenging and troubling aspects of that particular story. And I think if you, if you're, if you're, if you have any intent of getting past our old battles that are weary and exhausting and, and have, have uh, you know, taken a great toll on us. I think we owe it to ourselves to, to, to do that research and find the things we're talking about where you're, you're investing in a, in a character that may be troubling. There's something that you said there about people being a nut. I think there's a, uh, a fallback position to people who are playing villains and can't connect that this person is just a psychopath. Like, they're, they, they can't understand why a person would act in a certain way, so they assume that they're mentally ill, and that gives them the excuse mm. to do these things because they don't understand what's right and wrong. They just do whatever makes them feel good or whatever. And there, I mean, certainly there are probably characters in place that are actually, you know, ill psychopaths. Mm -hmm. If that's the case, you need to also research what that means and play that honestly but it but just because you don't understand why someone to, would do something doesn't mean that they're sick well, it, but, it, they could you know but you have to be careful not to just t I think that's an easy path that some people take but even when somebody is sick it actually, for the most part, does not change the essential way that you play them. Right, logic. It's logic, because the thing is, is when you're talking about someone who is psychotic or in some way delusional, there are things that they believe to be true about their world and are behaving in a logical and reasonable and good, quote-unquote, manner, given what they believe is true mm -hmm. about the world. Right. That if you can find the way that you genuinely believe this person who you're coming at with a knife has been trying to slowly poison you and you have... That, that if that's what is going on in this person's head, it gets very easy to play, I'm crazy and I'm going to kill you for slowly poisoning me. But how interesting would that... How much more interesting and scary and playable would that be if even though the play tells us that, in fact, this person is not really trying to poison you, that if you do the work of what evidence you believe you have, and actually from the point of view of the character, what evidence you absolutely have, you caught them, you saw them doing it, how do you deal with this person who's trying to kill you? And you're there to defend yourself. That would be a compelling scene to watch. It's funny that listening to both of you, you both said two things that I thought were, were really uh, uh, interesting. Is Jen, you said the word easy, and, and Kit, you said the word work. And what <laughs> the reason I latched onto those two particular words is I'm always surprised, and I understand this temptation, but I'm always surprised by actors in rehearsal uh, or doing their own script analysis when you ask them why a character does a certain something. Uh, maybe this is just the fear of, of appearing ignorant. Again, relating back to an earlier podcast, I always think the answer, I don't know, but I'm going to go find out, is a, is a pretty good answer. That's a pretty good impetus, I think, to want, to, want to, to realize you don't know something about a character, you don't know something about a play, and you want to go find that out and seek that out and, and hopefully learn something that you can then bring to the play. But what's fascinating to me is this temptation actors have, and it's easy to fall into it, in which... Someone asks, you know, the director asks, the player asks, why do you think this character does this? What's going on through that moment? And they, there's a great temptation to pick the most reductive answer possible. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think he just fill in the blank. That's and, something, a rule I yeah. have in my rehearsal is 
you cannot use the word just mm-hmm. to describe other than I'm fighting for justice. But, <laughs> right. but if you can describe what your character does as quote unquote just something, right. you need to find a different right. answer. Right. And it, it, yeah, that, and that's just something that I, I understand the temptation because, you know, A, acknowledging that you don't know something uh, requires, I, I think, a humility that, that uh, is tough for us to, I think, admit to other people, particularly in a work situation where mm-hmm. we're trying to bring all of our talents to a situation. And plus, it's just, without sounding, you know, glib or, or, or trite or just, you know, simplistic, it's hard. It's really hard, you know, to really get in, in, into these characters, particularly villains, where it's it's always great to play a character whose worldview aligns with yours. Mm-hmm. You know, to be, you know, to whether you're the hero or the villain, I can latch onto that really quickly because I get it. I understand it instinctively. I understand it cognitively. I, I understand it in, in ways that it just sort of vibrates in me. I, I don't even necessarily need, uh, you know, int- an intellectual understanding, but to really play those characters that that challenge our own perspectives or just have perspectives that just seem completely removed from us in which they just sort of puzzle us. Yeah. It takes a lot of work to do that. And so I, I just have a great respect then for, for, for the actors who really sort of dive into that and try to understand the, the, the skin of this other human being that seems so far, far from them. And it, it's supposed to be work. It, it, it's, I think there's a lot of actors who take pride when something comes easy. But I would say, I mean, it's it's something we've talked about before uh, on on other episodes that what rehearsal should be about is about finding out what happens to you. Mm-hmm. And part of that is you have to have things that you don't know. You have to have room to discover mm-hmm. things. But I again, I love that thing that Bill Clinton said about the about comparing it to a crossword puzzle. And and I always think that people who Find the reductive answer. When you're finding the reductive answer, the easy answer, you're doing the Tuesday morning version of your character. Mm -hmm. The Tuesday morning crossword puzzle version of your character. And you should always do the Sunday version of your character. You should always set yourself high bars, even when the character resonates with you. Mm -hmm. Look for deeper things. Look for things Mm -hmm. that aren't coming as easily. Mm -hmm. Because... Those places where you as an actor really need to engage the process and engage your character and dig through them, you can feel it on stage. You can feel the work that went into it because the characters just feel so expansive. They feel like they exist outside of the constructs of this play. And I think that's such an important thing with the villain that the purpose of the villain being on Earth is not to thwart the hero. And that becomes a really easy... That's their purpose in the play. Mm-hmm. But, and again, it becomes so easy to let that feel like it's your purpose in the world as a character. And if you do that, you don't really challenge... You're not a real challenge mm-hmm. for the hero. That would be like, um, you know, sometimes it comes up in scene study where, you know, people are going at each other and one person's going for something and then the other person figures out what that is and just tries to stop them from getting what they want instead of going for what they want themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think, I mean, that's the small version, is that you shouldn't be trying to, your goal doesn't necessarily, I mean, it shouldn't be trying to prevent someone from having what they want. You should be going for what you want. Mm-hmm. You have your own agenda to further. You have your own agenda, and it isn't just to, like, defend the goal mm-hmm. from the other person. Well, it, it gets, actually, that, that that's such a great thing, because I think an important thing with a villain and again, the big trap is playing a villain is not about being evil. No. It's about doing evil, right. which is different. And I think that that idea of choosing strong objectives, strong things you want, strong things you need, strong things that you are going to fight for, strong things that you are willing to go up and over the, protag- the hero of the story in order to get, that's what's going to make you seem villainous. Mm-hmm. The fact that you are willing to sacrifice to get these things that you want and not the fact that you talk in a scary voice and arch your eyebrow and laugh at things. Which, I mean, that's the most reductive way to do things. But you want to find the way that you want these things that this character wants. That you believe in them. And it, it goes back always to something that we've talked about a few times before. I, I just say, they say don't judge your character. But I say judge your character and judge them to be good. And that is an especially hard thing to do but an especially important thing to do when you're talking about playing a villain. 
find the way that the world as they know it and they understand it, the things that they do are the right things to do. The things that they do, if you lived in a world with the facts that they are living with, you would do the same thing. And there is probably not a person who would not kill another person in the right situation. And the trick that you need to do is figure out what would the situation have to be in order for me to do what this character does. So I think that's probably a good place to wrap up. The one additional thing that I would say that I think is is important and the reason I find it really useful to talk about playing villains is ultimately the way you play a villain is the way you play a character. And that everything we have talked about today about judging your character to be good, about finding the story that you want to tell, that you can believe in, about finding objectives that you can believe in and that you can follow through. That's what you need to do every single time you play any character. And the trick to playing a villain is not playing a villain, but playing a character. Right. So that's going to be it for us for this episode, and it's going to be it for us for this season. We will be back in the fall with us and other members of the Cry Havoc community to talk about different topics having to do with acting, writing, and directing. Uh, We also are going to, next season, wrap up the series that we started this season with the uh, Writers series. And if you want to know more about Cry Havoc, what we're up to, want to come and see anything that we're doing, if you want to uh, support our work, uh, please go to www.cryhavoccompany.org. If you have not already and would like to subscribe, go to iTunes and subscribe, or you can go back and listen to any old episodes you haven't heard. And certainly, if you know anyone who you think would be interested, please spread the word that the podcast is out there and go to iTunes and uh, write us a review and give us stars. So for Tim, Kerry, Jenny, Jen, and myself and everyone at the Cry Havoc Company, thanks so much. Thanks for joining us this season. Uh, Have a great summer and we'll talk to you soon. You can learn more about the Cry Havoc Company at cryhavoccompany.org. Questions or comments can be sent to podcasts at cryhavoccompany.org. All music from this show came from the Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Thanks for listening and please subscribe.